What's up, K Corner Podcast? How are we doing today? Welcome back to another episode. So, to start off this beautiful Monday, I'm not going to be talking about the Saturday uh, conference championship games. I will get into that. And I'm not going to be talking about the MLB just quite yet, although I'll get into that. I'm also not talking about the NFL or the Monday, or sorry, or the Monday night football game. Not NFL Sunday, not Monday night football, not. MLB transactions, although I will be getting to all of those things. I'll also be talking about NCAA and playoff games and the implications and rankings, but right now I want to take some time to uh, mourn uh, you know, an incredible football season by a player who overcame obstacles, transferred away from his school, found a home, lit it up, really was the the reason why this team had success we saw this this team ride him to success in and out every single week and he got completely snubbed um, from the Heisman list so this is one of the examples of me absolutely hating Heisman voting hating AP voting hating all these things that these guys can just say stuff. It's the same thing with the Hall of Fame. You've heard me go off about the Hall of Fame and how these media writers think they're so smart and so creative and they have this really sneaky idea and really they're just being idiots and trying to convince themselves they're smart because they have nothing better to do except write about that opinion in two weeks so that way they can uh, feel also better about themselves again as millions of trolls are in their chat. But uh, Kenneth Walker III absolutely hosed absolutely hosed in this game you know he was one of the most dominant running backs dominant in a different way in the Big Ten Um, obviously Wisconsin you have to take any of their success with a grain of salt just because of how good they are but Kenneth Walker ran behind an awful line scored a lot of touchdowns five touchdowns against U of M completely changed the trajectory trajectory of this university and he isn't invited to the university or to New York for Heisman um it's Dave uh who's been giving me a few different ones now we talked about Heisman last week before which is I'm kind of happy about because I already aired out my uh, opinion on who should kind of be in and uh Dave kind of went in and was like hey it just seems ridiculous. Like, how does Aiden Hutchinson get in when Will Anderson from Alabama is having a much better years from a statistical standpoint? Um, I don't think you guys are yelling at the right person, personally. If you watch Aiden Hutchinson's game and why he doesn't have... Aiden Hutchinson could have 19 sacks this year if teams wouldn't run three-step drops out of shotguns. Like, if you watch the Iowa game... He had clean routes to the quarterback, and the quarterback got rid of the ball in three steps. Like, he wasn't even looking to get open. He's like, yep, I have to get rid of it. it from his blind side, from his clean side, Aiden Hutchinson put an Iowa defensive end into Kenny Pitt. Like, it would have been a sack by him, but he threw it in three steps. So, I would say that he's been super, super dominant. And Sparty is, and I don't like using this term, but you guys are, and I'm not going to use it, but you guys are super, like, Aaron Hutchinson, of course, in Michigan. Like, guys, like, there's not a chip in your back. There isn't this 
whole system trying to outgain you, trying to outwork you. Like the reason why Kenneth Walker didn't get in is two things. First, there's a clear media bias for quarterbacks. Kenny Pickett is by far the third best quarterback that played this year. Uh, He played in an awful SEC. He threw the ball almost 500 times. He isn't close to Bryce Young's stats. He has better stats than C.J. Stroud, but C.J. Stroud played in a lot of blowouts. He has 100 less attempts, and he has like 800 less yards. So if you just statistical that out, he's averaging much more per attempt. He's averaging right around the same completion percentage. He, you know, he's, he's, it's, it's not even comparable. And the ACC is awful and Pitt's a bad team. So I, I don't get how they put Kenny Pickett in. I mean, is Kenny Pickett having an incredible year? Yeah. Is he the ACC probably offensive player of the year? Yeah. Him or Hartman from uh, Wake Forest. But the fact that people are like, yeah, this is who needs to be in uh, that really got me. So if you guys are, you know, angry, <coughs> so you guys are all mad at Aiden Hutchinson for because you're state fans. I think Aiden Hutchinson, like I said, was a super dominant player. Would I've liked Will Anderson to be there? Yes, but you're not. You shouldn't be mad at the individual player, Michigan brands, which do have an impact. Pitt's a less relevant brand than MSU. But Kenny Pickett got in because he's a quarterback. And honestly, if you guys should be mad at anyone, it should be your defense. Because if at any point MSU is in the Ohio State game, Kenneth Walker probably picks up 100 yards and a few touchdowns instead of them getting bulldozed by 50 points. And if your defense wasn't less bad and it was more... Just, just more relevant to being near a top stardom team. I mean, you guys would have, he would have had five touchdowns. I mean, you saw what Michigan did. And, and Hassan Haskins is a good back. He's a fine back. I think he's going to be a good NFL back, a guy that just turns out yard, does all the little things. But Kenneth Walker could have had that game too. And if you're mad at anyone, it should be your defense and Kenny Pickett for getting in and this being a quarterback's award. I don't think you should have three quarterbacks because three quarterbacks don't deserve this award. There's two that probably do, right? And Kenneth Walker would be a running back. I think like there should be a requirement like in the media. The media should kind of come together and be like, all right, it should be usually one defensive player is deserving of it. Like, just deserving of an invite. We know they're probably not going to win it unless they go off for, like, 25 and a half sacks and still someone that throws for 3,000 yards. It's going to be like, wow, that's crazy. But when you look at it, it needs to be two quarterbacks, a running back, and a defensive player. Two quarterbacks and someone that's not a quarterback. There shouldn't be three quarterbacks. Kenny Pickett isn't in the conversation. He isn't close to being a Heisman contender. He isn't even close, man. Uh, that's that's the thing I'm frustrated about is like, why? Why? Because he played well against Wake Forest. Like the ACC might have the worst defenses in the country, man. Like they're terrible. This Pitt team lost to West Virginia or Western Michigan, sorry. And we're like, yep, that makes sense. They, they get to play Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech. Clemson wasn't very good this year. I mean, they lost to Miami, man. And, and this is who gets to go to New York. This kid who threw for 519 and three touchdowns and two picks because they threw the ball 55 times on a Miami team. Like, it, he's just a volume guy. I, I, I don't understand 
um, him being there, but you guys are mad at the wrong people. I'm going to kind of just wrap up that point with saying that I think the four people who who are going, I don't think two of them have a chance. I don't think Aiden Hutchinson has a change, chance. I don't think Kenny Pickett has a chance. Now, do I like when non-quarterbacks get invited? Yeah, but, I mean, Bailey Zappi put up incredible numbers in his team for, uh, what was it, Western Kentucky. And, I mean, they were incredible, and no one cared. And I think that's how everyone was kind of dealing with Kenny, Kenny Pickett. But you have Eastern East Coast voters. Um, there's a tweet that Dave sent to me that uh, uh, Scott Bell, I think he's a Michigan guy. He's like, I'm saying agree that you know Kenneth Walker should be there. It sucks that he's not there, and that having bigger brands associated with the award helps get you to there, which is basically like a hint that yeah, Aiden Hutchinson's probably there because Michigan's playing on like a top brand. And he basically said like, hey, it's the way to change that is to have Sparty be a big brand. And I think Sparty's working towards that. And I know a lot of state fans think locally in, in, in the world that state is a top-tier brand. I don't agree at all with that. I think they're a good brand, but no one talks about the history of MSU football. No one talks about the prestige of MSU football. right? I, 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 a good comp to who you guys are as kind of a... Like if we, if we want to go SEC, and this is at no means or qualms of disrespect, you guys are like Ole Miss to the SEC as you are to the Big Ten. Like you've had success for a few years. Like you always have some really fun players, but you don't have the prestige that some of these other places do. And it's 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 because of the Mark D'Antonio years. And you guys, like as much as you guys rose to stardom, you guys rose to stardom in an unconventional way where people perceived the Big Ten to be down. I don't think that it was it. That was it. MSU was good. And I think that, for the most part, MSU just built their brand on being big physical running backs. And people who don't watch MSU play and watch the lines be awful and Kenneth Walker run around them, they say, oh, another MSU running back. They found their power game. He's good. And that's wrong. And I don't agree with him with that decision. But I, I, I stopped taking shots at Aiden Hutchinson. Aiden Hutchinson has had an incredible year. He literally shut down complete games at the end of the season. He won games at the end of the season, which is not what Kenneth Walker did. So it's like, sorry to say that. Like, Kenneth Walker was irrelevant against Ohio State. He had a decent game against Purdue, but he touched it three or four times in the second half, and they lost. And you can talk about, well, that's not his fault. Well, the award committee is going to look at it. Why did he become irrelevant in those games? Because the running back position isn't as important as other positions. That's how they're going to view it. Now, is that right or wrong? I, I'm probably I'm, I'm on the wrong side. I think he had a hell of a year. He should have been invited. But don't take away Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud or Aiden Hutchinson. Take away the guy that wasn't really in the conversation and then has a really big game against Wake Forest, who's statistically one of the worst defenses in the country, probably just next to MSU. And the worst thing about it is Pitt is going to play MSU in the uh, – uh, Sugar, no, 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 Peach Bowl, and Kenny Pickett's probably going to have a huge day, and it's like a lot of people on Twitter are going to be like, see State fans, you don't know shit, and we're all like, no, state de- State's defense is goddamn awful. But I'm going to move on from the Heisman uh, uh, talk. I-, I think I've said my-, my due diligence on that point probably a little bit too much if I'm being honest with you. I, I think that some of the anger comes from state always feeling like they don't get nationally recognized, which I would agree. I would agree state doesn't get as nationally recognized as everyone else, like as Michigan does. But 
that's not Michigan's fault. It's state's fault, if that makes sense. Like, if state had a better brand, Kenneth Walker probably would have been there. If state went on a loss 52 to 3 because they would have had a better defense, Kenneth Walker would have gotten carries and he would have scored. And that's just kind of the way it is, is that down the stretch in the most impactful games, he had, what, eight carries against Ohio State, and he had two carries in the second half against Purdue, and those are their two big losses this year. Like, that's that that's what people in the media see as a coach not trusting you or you're not having a big of an impact, whether that's fair or not. Uh, moving on, we're going to the Saturday games. Um, Michigan versus Iowa. Michigan... Michigan offensively looked perplexed in the first half. This this Iowa defense is very, very skilled. Um, Michigan was up 23-3 to at the end of the third. We knew Iowa wasn't going to have a chance to score. We, didn't, we, we knew that it was kind of over on the terms of Iowa winning, but Michigan pours 21 on late due to defensive stops, the Iowa defense being tired. Um, I, I think when you look at this game in the way that Michigan played, they didn't play a clean game again, and they still really went out there and dominated the team. Even against Ohio State, even against Iowa, they haven't played clean, clean games, and they've and they've dominated both opponents. So if Michigan can come in, clean all these little tweaks, clean all these little things up that, that they're doing poorly uh, going into the Georgia game, I think that's going to be a really fun game. Obviously, I'm going to preview bowl games and all that stuff, not today, not tonight. But it was a pretty good game. Blake Corum had a really big run at the first part of the game. J.J. McCarthy actually ran past him. It's a really funny clip if you check it out. Um, Michigan just handled business. It wasn't that good of a game in terms of like watching it. Um, there was a hell of a play by Donovan Edwards, former quarter- quarterback, um, on, a, on a pitch out to the right side of the offensive formation, and he threw an absolute diamond Roman Wilson, uh, former quarterback, when he was coming out of school because at the back end of his senior season, the the quarterback wasn't very good. And they were like, hey, he has to be the quarterback. He has to dominate. He has to have the ball in his hand at all times. And he threw an absolute beautiful ball, even with like a kind of a cheap hit on him too, up around the head and her neck on the release. Um, so Michigan goes out and dominates. I don't think that's really anything to say. Iowa looked tired at the end. And that's really when Michigan poured it on. Baylor, Oklahoma State. Um, this was an incredible game. Baylor played an awful game. I think, or sorry, no, no, Oklahoma State played an awful game. I think nine times out of ten, Oklahoma State wins. Uh, the the quarterback for Oklahoma State literally threw them out of this game. He just made awful decisions all game with the ball. And this Oklahoma State defense, you know, they had to face four, um, four turnovers, and they lost by five with the chance to punch the ball. And at the end of the game. And they couldn't get a yard. They couldn't get two yards. And that's sometimes how games work. If Oklahoma State wins this, Cincinnati probably falls out of the top twenty or out of the top four ranking. So this would have been kind of crazy for playoff and everything like that. Um, Oklahoma State shouldn't be upset with this. It just when the time came down to it, this Baylor team really imposed their will. Uh, this Oklahoma State offensive line didn't block well at all. Um, and then we have this we have this young man from Baylor, and I, I, I just talked pretty poorly about this Oklahoma State team, how they performed offensively, four interceptions, um, really looked to get manhandled at the point of attack, couldn't run the ball, couldn't do a lot of things. Um, Blake Shapin, he's a true freshman. He came out of Shreveport, Louisiana. He's the, he was the number one baseball recruit 
absolute live arm. He's going to be the starting shortstop and batting number four in their lineup if he ever chooses to go away from football. He was 23 of 28, 180 yards and three touchdowns. Very simple stuff. Uh, At the end of the game when Oklahoma State needed stops, Baylor ran the ball pretty effectively. The running back for Baylor ended up turning the ball over twice, two fumbles. But this was overall, when you look at kind of how this game went 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 about itself, um, Oklahoma State should have won this game. I mean, an inch away from going to the college football playoff. I don't think on fourth and one from the one-yard line when you've been stopped on two times already, you run a run play. That, that's just me, not with how much you've been dominating. I think looking at the yards per attempt here for uh, the rushing attack, they average 1.8 yards in attempt. Like you can't win games when you're not when you're running for less than 1.8 yards and you continue to run the ball when you're down on the goal line. Like that's when you need to have the the play where you like late leak a tight end back across the field or something on a roll out to the left if they're in man. You have to you have to get creative and indifferent and at no point in time uh did did Oklahoma State call a a creative play there is is basically how how I will describe it. Not 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 a very impressive performance by Oklahoma State's offense. At the same time Baylor's defense played lights out. Uh Oklahoma State's offensive line got dominated. It was it was a pretty like the Big Twelve um has gone away a bit from the run and gun. We're going to see 70 points. Defenses can't do anything. They've really got strong in the trenches, which there's a ton of recruits out in the Southwest, you know, until you get to California, if you want to consider that Pac-12 country. Um, but there's a lot of athletes, a lot of strong guys, a lot of men that sit in those areas. So it wasn't a surprise that they needed to get that these big, strong, and physical guys. But for such a long time, they're like, we need speed, we need speed, we need speed. And they got so speedy on the interior that they were weak and teams could just run against them. And that really isn't the case for this Baylor or Oklahoma State team. They're both very strong defensively on the line in the front seven. And that's how you win games, really. 21-16 was the final score of this one. It was a heck of a game, but uh, Oklahoma State's just inability to do anything offensively killed them. I mean, their defense kept them in this game the entirety of the game. Uh, every time that Baylor went out and got ahead, seemed like Oklahoma State, you know, got got stopped, and then Baylor got another stop, and then Oklahoma State scored is pretty impressive. Um, Georgia Alabama, forty-one to twenty-four. Alabama wins this game in a bit of a blowout. Uh, Georgia still hasn't been able to get over that hump. I think when you look at this team, Stetson Bennett having to throw the ball 48 times isn't ideal. He throws a pick six. This team only runs for 109 yards with 3.6 yards of carry. Brock Bowers' guy is an issue. He's a 6'4", 230 freshman. He runs like the wind. He's just an absolute freak, man. He had 10 receptions. The next highest was four on this uh, Georgia team, which kind of describes the point that their two best guys were, I both I believe both were tight ends uh, for receiving. Let me see. Oh, no, running back. So the running back and tight end had 14 catches of the 29 total of catches. So they had, you know, just under half. Um, George Pickens didn't really have a good game. And I, I don't know how this passing offense moves with with Stetson Bennett in it, I mean, he, he doesn't look good. Their line got dominated a bit, and Stetson was kind of running for his life at times out there. 
Um, moving on to Bryce Young, he was 26-44 for 421, three TDs. I think he locked up the Heisman at this moment. This defense was touted on as not being able to be scored upon, and Jamison Williams ran right by him at least three times. He had 184 receiving yards, seven receptions, two TDs. He absolutely dominated this game. Former Ohio State guy, I know I said that a few times. Uh, bad news for Alabama, John Mechie uh, is out with a torn ACL. Now, there are still guys on the outside. I mean, it's Alabama, guys. There's probably five more five stars waiting in the wings to go and prove themselves, and they're probably all young, and they're probably just absolute dogs over there. But what you need to look at overall is... Uh, sorry. Is this Alabama team is now the number one team in the country? Um, they played... I talked about this. I was like, it can be two ways. Alabama plays how they've been playing and they might get blown out by Georgia or Alabama plays how they can play and they will beat Georgia. And I said, I don't want to bet on a possibility, but Nick Saban's guys were ready. I think they're going to be ready against Cincinnati and then whoever they play in the next round. Um, Cincinnati's defense hasn't faced offensive firepower like this. The best offense they really faced was Notre Dame and Notre Dame's offense isn't very good. Uh, I think Alabama scores on them it'll be interesting to see now I want to say Cincinnati's defense is strong in the front seven if Alabama can't run which they haven't been able to do really all year uh can they get a pass rush uh the Bearcats that is get a pass rush on Bryce Young move his feet uh to stop these guys going deep because I mean you lose John Matchy. he had 97 yards a touchdown six receptions that's huge but there's more guys waiting in the wings and I know Sauce Gardner's hyped up as this first overall pick uh I want to see him face a guy like Jamison Williams. I want to see him, you know, go out there with the burner where you don't necessarily have two high safeties and you don't have your guys running at the quarterback free all the time. I want to I want to see that matchup just for football's sake. I think it's going to be a really good game going forward and Alabama they just played a hell of a game offensively. This Georgia defense, I mean, they got they got dog whistled. I think they match up very well for Michigan. Like in their behalf, like I think Michigan does a lot of things well that Georgia does well. What you saw here is that their corners were a little bit slow. They 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 couldn't stay with these fast Alabama's receivers. And if Michigan tries to pound the ball thirty times, I, I don't think it's going to go much on this defensive front for Georgia, who's incredibly skilled. But this Georgia team, I mean, they're number one all season. They blew out. They dominated. We talked about hey, can their offense? If Alabama gets scoring, can someone keep up? And Georgia wasn't that team. I also would have thought Ohio State would have been a bad matchup for um, Georgia. I think Georgia would have ran it down their throat. But it kind of would have been a Michigan-Georgia game where if if Ohio State can score and score and score, can Georgia even keep up? Because I think the one thing that Georgia doesn't have is is capable guys to, to in, in a good enough schemer to get Cade into simple throws that give them you know scoring opportunities again and again and again. Um, Cincinnati, Houston, 35-20. I mean, I guess, like, that's good. I mean, when you look at this game, Houston controlled much of it. Uh, Cincinnati gets a touchdown to open the half and then an interception and then two plays later and it's 28-13. You know, it's something that simple. And then they go up 35-13 to and don't really do anything else with it, and Utah gets a late score. I mean, I don't think the Cincinnati team is great. I don't think you can dominate this low of skill level opponents and think that you're better than a two-loss team. I think if Cincinnati plays in any conference, they have a minimum of two losses. Any conference, even in the ACC, I think they have two losses. 
So this is one of those times where a group of five opponent is getting an opportunity, and it's against a team like Bama, where Bama has have a track record of having a month to prepare. They're going to shit down your throat. Um, it'll be interesting to see, because if Cincinnati goes out there and gets blown out, you may not see Cincinnati and a group of five team go back there ever again. And and that's also saying if Michigan gets blown out by Georgia, then we're like, okay, the SEC is much better than everyone else. This is obviously their year. There's still a mile in between the two conferences. But when I go and watch teams play, usually it's usually not two miles between. Like when you go and watch SEC teams in bowl games and Big Ten teams in bowl games, when, in the early 2000s, it was night and day. Like there's literally Big Ten guys were slow and bumbling and SEC guys were just running by them. And their, their lines were good and their D lines were good. But that isn't necessarily a story. It'll be interesting to watch how bowl season kind of progresses. Because I think the SEC is trying to accommodate some of these high passer offenses. They may not be as strong and as deep on the front lines as some of these Big Ten schools. It'll be interesting to see how this matchup kind of pans out. Um, obviously, it's all matchup driven. It's all how well does this team match up with another team. But I do want to say, though, is everyone always talks about the gaps a mile. Um, Alabama was considered one of the better teams when Michigan played them. And I think it was the Orange Bowl. Again, the Verbo Orange Bowl or whatever is a New Year's Six Bowl. And Michigan literally was with them the whole entire time and dropped two touchdown passes. And if they want to drop those passes, it would have been a one-score game going into the fourth quarter. Like it, Michigan had the lead at half. It's not like they are just getting blown out of the ball. It was eventually a two-touchdown win. But it's things like that where the, the end score, people are like, oh, they got blown out two touchdowns. It's like, no, it's just like one play, you know. One play can lead to that differential. Uh, Pittsburgh-Wake, I barely talked about it. I told you guys it was going to be a lot of points. I think the over-under was 71, and they scored 66. Um, That being because Wake Forest didn't play very well. Like, Kenny Pickett threw for 253 and two touchdowns. Like, what really happened is Wake Forest and Sam Hartman got confused in a lot of coverages. Sam Hartman played incredibly poorly through four picks in this game and ended up getting blown out 45-21. to I will have a special shout-out to Christian Turner, um, running back that is on Wake Forest. He was a former Michigan guy. He got buried down that depth chart. I mean, obviously a lot of good backs ahead of him. But 253, two touchdowns, 7.7 yards in attempt is what got him into... The, the playoff. It, it's it's about team wins. It's about popularity. It's about getting to 11 wins. It's about all this bullshit. Um, one guy, State fans, if you haven't, um, if you haven't been following ACC football, which why the hell would you? But Jordan Addison is the guy for you to watch. Watch out. He's six foot 175, um, and he's been dominating. In the last five weeks, he has 171 against Duke and a touchdown. He had 202 and four touchdowns against Virginia. He had 81 and two touchdowns against Syracuse. He had 126 against Wake, and he had 84. 84 on six receptions was his worst performance against UNC in a win that they had 30-23 to in OT. This is a guy that you need to look at. He has 1,400 yards receiving this year on 17 touchdowns on 93 receptions. So he'll probably go over 1,500 against you, which is incredible for a sophomore that's only six foot. So that's the guy, State fans, if you're listening, that you need to be looking out for. Look up his highlight videos, maybe send a few clips to your cornerbacks to be like, hey, please don't let him beat you. Like you got beaten dirty all week. 
Um, with that being said, I'm going to move on. The uh, I'll talk about rankings on Wednesdays. I know the rankings came out. I know bowl games came out, but I could probably talk about bowl games and matchups and all that stuff for probably two and a half hours. And I don't want to do that tonight. I'll be doing that probably Wednesday. I'll talk about the top four. Um, obviously, in the college football playoff, I'll talk about those matchups. I will talk about bowl games that I really like, bowl games that I'm coming up with, bowl games that I want to talk about because sometimes bowl games are weird because you can have freshmen or sophomores that take really big jumps if they didn't have a very good fall, if they were injured or fighting something in the fall. They can have these tremendous jumps going into uh, the, the, the bowl games. And so it's always really fun to see that. So moving on to the NFL, the Lions. Holy fucking shit, guys. Lions pick up a win, 29-27. Jared Goff it, it must have been injured all year long. Now, he still didn't play great. He was 25-41. He had a late pick. He had a really late uh, fumble that almost cost him. But they picked up the win. He had three touchdown passes, 296 yards, playing much improved. I don't think this Minnesota team was great. I said they weren't very great. And I said the Lions probably won't win because why the hell would they? But they finally pick up a win. Jamal Williams had 17 carries, 71 yards. Um, Amara St. Brown caught his first career touchdown pass. One of the things that everyone was talking about coming out was that Amara St. Brown is going to take a little bit more time than everyone else. He had 10 receptions, 86 yards, one TD. Is this a bit of a coming out party for him? Josh Reynolds caught a few deep balls. I mean, I see th- four completions over 20 yards, and that's something that we're not used to seeing with golf. Uh, I would like to talk about just going forward that like when you look at the next season needs, obviously the Lions need a pass rusher, but they have been getting a really, really good push out of uh, Chris Harris. Is his name? Or Charles Harris. Um, he's out of Missouri. He has six sacks on the year. So that's a really good pickup for them. And uh, Julian Aquara picks up a sack this year, his third of the year. He's still trying to work through. He's a little bit younger of a player, only 23. But looking at how this team kind of operates, uh, they need a defensive pass rusher, and they probably need another offensive weapon in the terms of a receiver. Uh, a guy like Jamison Williams would be a guy who completely transforms an offense like this, where Amara St. Brown is your possession, your underneath guy that's going to catch it, but you need someone to take the top off of the defense. And is Jared Goff the guy to throw it? I don't know, but until you get a guy that can really win on the top side and, and win consistently, you can't judge Jared Goff. Now, is Jared Goff the saving grace? No. Do I still think he needs to be replaced? Yes. Is the next year's quarterback draft awful? Also, yes. I don't think this next year's quarterback draft, or well, this year's, like going forward, quarterback draft is great. I think if you get a guy in the second round, that wouldn't be bad, like a Sam Howell or or a, um, I wouldn't like Kenny Pickett, although he's played incredible this year, and although you've seen this huge leap, and people are going to see that and been like, see, he had this in him all the time. I, I'm going to say that it, it's different when you're going against ACC guys and you're like 20 fucking five and you're just a goddamn man out there. So I wouldn't necessarily like him, but next year's class is going to be so much better with Stroud and, and Bryce Young and, you know, possibly Rattler, depending on how well he plays. Cause everyone's talking about him being Heisman possible number one choice when he's a junior. Um, obviously he doesn't have a great year as a sophomore, 
which is both in terms of him not being super athletic in terms of sprinting around. Now, he can move, but he isn't a true runner, and that offense requires a runner. So hopefully we see him go somewhere and kind of blossom, although I think he's a dickbag, so I'm maybe not even that mad. But hopefully this humbles him a bit and becomes a little bit more or less of a dickhead overall. But this, this Lions team, I mean, that's the one win. Now, you don't need to win again. Keep the number one draft pick. Pitch, pick Kavon Thibodeau or Aiden Hutchinson, or you sell it to the highest bidder who wants to go get a quarterback, move back four spots, and then you get one of the two anyway because everyone behind you probably needs a quarterback too. Because I think the Texans, who's behind them in standings? Let me let me just quick look. League. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, Texans, Jacksonville isn't. I mean, maybe you don't just because everyone else is probably going to take a pass rusher except for Houston. Uh, but... Hey, the Lions aren't the first team eliminated from the playoffs. Houston is. That's just a funny fact that I thought I should throw out there. Um, But going back to NFL games, uh, Buccaneers end up beating the Falcons a little bit closer than uh, most would have thought. It was like 30-20 at one point because Brady threw a pick six. He's had a few of those this year where it should be a simple pass. It's like a screen. And so... Defensive guys are reading a little bit quicker. Cardinals pick up a win against the Bears. The Bears tried to throw this game away five times, and the fact that it was an 11-point game was incredible. Um, The Cardinals still look like they're rolling. They're heading into the point of the season in the NFC where if Green Bay doesn't pick up some more big wins and if the Rams continue to not play well, that they'll have this thing wrapped up very early which is good because they have been dealing with some injuries. Chargers and Bengals, this was a crazy game. The Bengals got down like 24-7. to uh, The Chargers just ran roughshod on them. Um, Joe Burrow has continued to have his turnover problem. Uh, he threw for 300 yards, 40 times, two picks. I really am surprised by the rush defense that uh, the Chargers displayed. They've been so inconsistent this year. I was like, there's no way that they play the rush better than they have all year against Cincinnati. Cincinnati's going to run through them, and the Chargers pick up a huge win um, in the NFC East or NF or uh, AFC West playoff picture. I believe they're one game behind the Chiefs now. Yeah, the Chiefs are eight and four. LAC is seven and five. Las Vegas are six and six. Denver six to six which is kind of predictable, but that was really incredible performance by Herbert. He threw for 317 yards, three touchdowns. Austin Eckler almost, almost gave the game game away. He tried really, really hard with two fumbles um, and ended up pulling them after that. Dolphins pick up a win against the Giants. Uh, This is basically the end of the Giants season. Dolphins pick up a big win though. Tua looked pretty good. Um, They've been winning a lot of games even after after that really bad bumble stretch where Tua got injured and they didn't really know where they were at. A lot of quick passes, a lot of getting the ball out of Tua's hands, letting his guys kind of feed, which is exactly what you saw at Bama, and they're kind of simplifying things down. Eagles get a really big win against the Jets. Gardner Minshew season, baby. This game I'm going to talk about a little bit. Um, If you didn't see it, there's a really awesome clip of Gardner Minshew um, hugging his dad and, like, pounding his chest and just acting excited, you know. It's not always fun. Gardner Minshew was on a really bad Jaguars team, um, and he played well. I mean, people people can talk all they want about Gardner Minshew. This man's a fighter. This man's a dog. He goes out th- and gives it his 110%, and he always puts his team in a really good position, not always to win just because of the teams he's been on, but he always fights so damn hard, and that's something that you can respect. And Gardner Minshew comes out as 20 of 25 for 242 and two touchdowns against this Jets team. Now, I know this Jets team hasn't been incredible, 
And I know that Miles Sanders ran for 120 yards and Kenneth Gainwell ran for 54. And they averaged 4.5 yards a carry. But uh, Dallas Goddard had 105 yards and two touchdowns. Like, Gardner Minshew, you can, he, he's a lot of things, but he's not a bad quarterback. And I'm so happy to see him get this opportunity. Hertz played really bad last week. He may have been injured as well. And Gardner Minshew gets an opportunity here, and he takes it and runs with it. Now, the, the, the changing point, and we've seen this a lot, right? New QB comes in. They have a completely different philosophy, different game plan on how they go forward. There isn't any film on them. There's going to be film on him now. People are going to go back and look at his Jacksonville Jaguar days, look at how he reads defenses, try to pick up on those cues. So the way to keep the job, unlike Mike White did outside of getting injured and stuff like that, is to to maintain poise and, and to really don't get ahead of yourself. Just because you made throws last week, those throws aren't going to be there anymore because they saw it on film. Um, Zach Wilson has a decent little bounce back game. Um, he had 226, two touchdowns and interception, another turnover. But, I mean, where he was a few weeks ago, and especially against this Phillies defense, that that is growth. Elijah Moore had 77 yards, six receptions and a touchdown. Um, Jay Crowder had four receptions for 62 yards. So this offense wasn't incompetent. Um, this Phillies team just played really well and capitalized on turnovers when they happened. And, you know, that Jets team just isn't very good. Uh, I said exactly what was going to happen in this Colts and Texans game. I mean, anyone who had a heartbeat, Jonathan Taylor had 143 yards, two touchdowns. I'd still like to see him get less carries. I know everyone's like, what are you talking about? Less carries. He's going for a Russian title. He's going for this. Guys, he leads the league in attempts now. He leads the league in yards. He leads the league in touchdowns, right? Which is all fine and dandy, but he's a young running back. He had a ton of carries at Wisconsin. His body can keep up with a ton of carries, but you have running backs behind him. Just when you, when you're up 20 points, just put someone else in. Let Nikhil Hines, who averaged eight yards a carry, get in there. Just, just do it. It's, it's okay. Uh, I really don't like seeing them running him into the ground this early in the season. I mean, week 14 and 15, you know, when you're up 31-0, if you need to run him into the ground because you're trying to win, you know, a, a game against, Someone important, I, I'm 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 handy dandy with that, but not not right there. Like it would have been nice to have him take a half off. They have a bye week this week, and then next week, or and then uh, not this coming week, but the week after, they go and where the f- they go and play the Patriots, and he's going to be banged up and sore. Now they do have a full bye week and stuff like that, but I just just don't like that decision making on giving him that many carries, even when you control the game in your hands. Washington wins a game here, 17-15. Derek Carr doesn't throw a touchdown pass. Um, Josh Jacobs plays okay. Hunter Renfro has nine receptions for 102 yards. Taylor Heineke, um, 196, two touchdowns. Uh, they're really running the ball now, this Washington football team. Uh, it, it's been impressive to see that, the, the, you know, there's always been this push, right, to, to leap to the next boundary, to go to the next step forward. And we've seen a lot of teams returning to, playing more traditional style football, running the ball more in, in, in first down and in, in second and long to get yourself in a good field position because the defensive coordinators can scheme so well, because so many more athletes are flowing to that side of the ball. Right, I talked about the last time. It's, it's about a flow. You, you get really bad offensive lines or really good defensive lines, and then it flip-flops every few years few years, especially in the NFL level, where it's based on what college teams are doing. And college teams have to defend against speed. They have to defend against people throwing the ball 60 times. But what not a lot of college football teams get outside of like Big Ten country 
and and maybe maybe Texas because they have Bijan Robinson and Iowa State. I mean, you're not seeing 25 to 35 to 40 carries going at your head a game. Uh, it's just not how people play. Uh, and getting the ram down your throat so consistently, it's sometimes tough. And it's tough for teams to game plan because you can scheme a quarterback into looking the wrong way, but it's really hard to scheme, you know, outside of stunting and, and run zone, you know, different slants and stuff like that and diving into holes and, and blitzing your linebackers. I'm just saying from a schematic standpoint, if you get dominated at the point of attack and you keep getting dominated at the point of attack, it's difficult for you to to get creative on defense and then the offensive, you know, the quarterback can take an approach because you can't run a corner blitz on the on the right side if this team is going to be, you know, so consistent or not, not even that. You can't run a guy into the you know, the B gap on, on the on the front side and power side of the defense, if this team on the right side is rotating in a side, you know, in a, in a zone blocking scheme, and there's going to be a cutback lane because, you know, someone had to jump a gap. Like, there's just so many different things that you can kind of look at. And so Antonio Gibson, 23 carries, 88 yards, and they kind of ate after this Las Vegas defense as they get to 6-6. Six and six. And, and, you know, little did you know, Taylor Heineke and the fighting football team which just sounds so ridiculous. I really hope they ha- have a better name next year. Um, they're in second place in the division and only two games back from Dallas. Um, absolutely crazy that that's where we're at in, in the timeline, right? In, in, in the timeline we're thinking about. The Rams get a bounce back win, 37-7. Um, pretty predictable. This offense for Jacksonville is still inept, incompetent. Uh, I just I can't even comment on it anymore just because of how inconsistent and bad this offense is. Um, up and down every single week. I just don't understand. Like, is the offensive line so bad? Like, like I'm, I'm being asking a genuine question here. Is that offensive line so bad that they literally can't run plays? Because I know Taylor Law- or Trevor Lawrence ran a simple offense, a lot of checkdowns, but I also know he liked throwing one-on-one and jump balls. But is it like you can't let those routes develop? Are guys not being able to run open? And we can't even max protect because they still get by. Um, 26-38, to 295 yards, three TDs from Max Stafford. Um, it's going to be a different story uh, going into next week. Rams versus Cardinals. Uh, 12-13 is the next game for the Rams. So they, have a, they had a bye. They played the Packers, played the Jags, and then they have another bye. Wait, that's not a bye. That is next week. Sorry. Um, Rams play the Cardinals uh, next week on Monday night. Um, I'm going to that game, so that'll be a lot of fun. I probably won't have the podcast out that day because of that very reason, but uh, I'm super hype about being able to go to that game. Um, should be fun. I'll probably be rooting for Matthew Stafford, um, and then I want the Cards to win, though. Like I'll be rooting for Matthew Stafford to have a good game, uh, but I'll, I'll be rooting in general for the Cardinals because that's my new home team. Although I might have to rethink it because the Lions and the Cards both won this weekend. Uh, Cooper Cup is still having his tremendous season. He is leading the league in receptions, yards, and touchdowns. He has 100, uh, 1,366, and 11 TDs. He, he's he's had over 95 yards in, in all of his last five contests. He hasn't scored as many touchdowns, though. I think his touchdown production drop is because of guys like Odell getting more involved and running the ball more effectively and Van Jefferson also being a productive member of that lineup. Sony Michel finally getting used to this uh, environment and still going after it. Um, Baltimore versus Pittsburgh. Baltimore loses a heartbreaker that keeps the Bengals 
And, and you know, if, if you get to nine and three and the Bengals drop to, I believe, seven and five, that's huge. But now Pitt's still in it. Now you have Baltimore still in it, or sorry, Cincinnati's still in it. Baltimore drops a huge one here. And it, it really comes down to two things. So John Harbaugh in a post-game interview was asked, should you have gone for two there because you didn't get it? And we found out that Marlon Humphreys tore his ACL or something like that and is out for the rest of the season. He's like, hey, we weren't able to stop them in the second half. They're throwing it way beyond us, and we need to do it. And Lamar Jackson just missed the throw. Uh, I think it probably should have been caught, but a tight end on a little seam route, you have to hit him. You have to hit him, and like you have to give him an ch- easy chance. Like I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been, but it was on the tip of his fingers, man. Like Even if he does catch it, he may get tacked. Like he was wide open. Those are the throws that Lamar Jackson gets when people come at him with criticism. And he's a tremendous athlete, tremendous guy. But some of those simple, simple throws that you know lead the wins, and this one directly would have led to a win. He just misses just because of an inconsistency as a thrower. Maybe he loses focus because it is such an easy throw, and he's such a good athlete that he just thinks he can flick it, and his foot works bad. I haven't really watched the play other than two or three times to be like, wow, how did they miss that? But uh, you know, those are the those are the drops. Those are the things that can shatter teams. Uh, you know, now Marlon Humphreys is out. Is this defense something they can rely on? I think Pitt was. I thought Pitt was dead in the water. Honestly, I was like, there's not a chance in hell that this Ravens team loses this game. The Steelers are awful, and every week in the NFL, you always find a game that's like, yeah, that definitely should have happened. How the heck did that happen? And it's becoming such a common occurrence. I, I literally. I, I anticipate one of these games a week, so I don't even I don't even predict it in my game plan because I like I wanna I don't wanna make a random guess that hey this 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 team that I didn't predict to win or that I thought was not going you know I didn't want to like pre predict myself into it but there's games every single week that I'm like how did this happen another example is San Francisco versus Seattle San Francisco dropping this game is huge Seattle was on the cusp of not being relevant anymore in the terms of playing and they're still kind of out of it but this hurts San Francisco a lot especially with how much the Rams were struggling and them getting an easy game like the Jags what the 49ers have next are the Bengals, the Falcons, the Titans, the Texans, and the Rams. So outside of the Texans and the Falcons, they have three very good teams, all three teams competing in their divisions. So this was not a game that you necessarily wanted to drop, having to probably go 500 at minimum over the next few weeks. Jimmy Garoppolo was 20 of 30 for 299, two touchdowns, two picks. Elijah Mitchell had 22 carries for 66 yards. This run game just couldn't go anywhere. And when you stop the run against a team like this, and, and when you hold J- Jimmy Garoppolo to be the winner, to be the team, to be the guy. It's it's the same thing in a bunch of different situations. When you hold him to be the guy, he, he doesn't have it in him yet. And, and maybe it's something he finds, maybe it's something he reveals, but he works best when everything, all the chaos isn't on him, right? Playing from a lead, uh, being able to be impactful and, and getting first downs when you need to, but he isn't that guy. Uh, George Kittle did have a hell of a game. Nine receptions, 181 yards, two TDs. Shout out to him. Uh, Brandon Ayuk had three receptions for 55 yards. Debo Samuel not playing also hurts this team. But Seattle, guys, I mean, they got defensive touchdowns. They had weird things happen. Uh, I believe D. Eskridge from Western Michigan just had his first career receiving touchdown in this game. So just wanted to shout him out. Western Michigan guy, absolutely awesome when you see guys that are in smaller college towns and stuff like that go out and and win. He's from Bluffton, Indiana, so he's a Midwest guy too on top of it. DK Metcalf had five receptions for 60 yards. He was a guy that really needed to um, 
get going. Really needed to be the guy to, to win, to, to for this offense to score 30 points. And I know they had some help with turnovers and stuff like that. But when you need this offense to go, he has to be impactful because of the way he can change the game. He takes the top off the defense so consistently. If you just throw it, it forces the secondary to play completely differently than if you're always checking it down. And on a side note, Adrian Peterson signed with this team. For those of you who didn't know, and he just tied the all-time rushing TDs record, or for he just tied 10th all-time on the rushing TDs um, record list. So shout out to AP for being AD. Um, next up, Chiefs-Broncos. I didn't think this game was going to be close. Close. Teddy Bridgewater is not the guy. People can keep telling and keep trying to convince me that Teddy Bridgewater is the guy. He's going to be the answer. People are like, no, you shouldn't go to Drew Locke or anyone else. It's like, you drafted Drew Locke. Why, why are you playing Teddy Bridgewater? He's shown you can't win games. You're now 6-6. Six and six, And your offense has scored 9. Okay, Broncos, I believe they had defensive scores, though. Yeah. They had, I'm not even counting the Broncos game, 9-13-30-17, like 17. Anytime you win, your defense goes in. If your defense lets up more than 20 points, you basically lose. And that's a key indicator that you're having offensive struggles. That when your defense is getting the other team off the field and you get a lot more attempts and you get a lot more chances and you win the field position battle, you can win games. But if your defense lets up scores, you're incapable. You're not capable of winning the game. And that's who Teddy Bridgewater is. As much as I love the guy, and his story's incredible, he almost lost his leg. He comes back from that injury, goes down to Carolina, plays, I think, decently well on a bad Carolina team. Carolina says, no, he's not our answer. Trades for Sam Darnold. And then we go to this Teddy Bridgewater fella, and there's some athletes. There's some playmakers on this offense. Jamal Williams had 102 yards. They averaged 4.4 yards a carry, and they scored nine points. Now, I know they had three turnovers, two of them coming from Teddy Bridgewater, but you only got sacked one time, and you come out with nine points. It's just incapable, like, unless it's your offensive coordinator literally can't scheme a game plan around you, and that's what you're blaming this on, it has to be you're the issue. Drew Locke, just throw him out there. What? You're going to lose? You've been doing that consistently. You've been winning one and losing one, and you don't think that Drew Locke can get 17 points? You don't think he can miraculously throw a deep ball to one of these really quick receivers on the outside? You don't think that's possible? Like, you got to get this guy shot. Who do they play next week? They may have a... No, they play the Lions. Dude, start them against the Lions. Lions have a mediocre to bad pass rush. The defense has been playing well the last few weeks. They let up deep balls consistently. Their offense shouldn't scare you. I don't think Minnesota's defense, who's been banged up all year, and especially going into that game, is very good. So just give Drew Locke a chance. Like, hey, what's the worst thing that happens? You lose a game and you get a better draft pick for next year to go and replace Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater? Like, I don't understand. There's this, there's this big idea around football and and it's that these guys who when everything works well they play well and what I mean by that is when the defense lets up less than 20 points like Jared Goff um Kirk Cousins Jimmy Garoppolo uh Ryan Tannehill are all kind of in this camp and they're not bad quarterbacks don't don't get me don't get me wrong on this but they're game managers who turn the ball over does that make sense? Like, like when you think back to really, really smart game managers, you think about Alex Smith, right? Game manager wasn't going to win the game for you. That man didn't throw picks. 
and he was efficient with the ball, and he got the ball out quick, and he got you into all the right reads. And, like, yeah, if the defense didn't play well, could he necessarily keep up with high-octane offenses? No, that's why they put Pat Mahomes in, because he was a guy who could take those shots, who was willing to take those shots. But when you look at kind of how everything plays out, when Ryan Tannehill's playing from a lead, and and the 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 game's in control, and they got the play action going. He is an elite quarterback. He's he's on time. He's on rhythm. He, he's throwing darts around the field. Same with Kirk Cousins. When Dalvin Cook has 100 yards, I want to know their win-loss because it has to be incredible. When he has 100 yards, they have to win 80% of their games because he is very, very good at the same way he was at MSU. And this isn't me knocking these guys. It's just the, the limitations that they put on an offense is that when they're quarterbacking, the offense has to produce for them. The defense has to produce for them. If your defense lets up 25 points, I mean, good luck winning. Like, unless Derrick Henry puts on five rushing touchdowns in the second half. Like, those are the ways that these guys win games. Or they throw one good throw. But you look at guys like Tom Brady. Well, Tom Brady's kind of... Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is a great example. For like five years, Aaron Rodgers had to score his way out of every game. Now, the defenses came around at the second half this year, which is why they're doing so well. But there's years where Aaron Rodgers, every time he went down the field, he had to score. He had to get something. Well, there's three points, seven points. And if you're only scoring threes, then you're losing the game because your defense just let up 25. And guys like that are great quarterbacks, are elite quarterbacks, are Hall of Fame quarterbacks. And there's this plethora of guys. And this would probably be like Matt Stafford, um... Matt Ryan, when, when younger, younger Matt Ryan, when Matt Ryan was real, real good and Julio Jones and that offense was rolling down there. Um, who else? Russell Wilson. Russell, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you three. Or I'll give you, uh, no, I want a third on this point because it's really important. So I'm going to take out Matt Ryan because it was so long ago. Couldn't talk about Matt Stafford, Russell Wilson, and let me think of the other quarterback. I'm just going through uh, uh, teams in my head, sorry. So you have the, F- the FC North, Josh Allen. Josh Allen, perfect example. Perfect, 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 perfect example. Now, all three of these dudes are next level skill-wise. They know how to, they can do all the throws. They're, they're athletic enough to run around. I mean, Matt Stafford is on the lower end of all that. The other two are a bit more athletic than him, so I'm not necessarily putting him in good athlete category. But Matt Stafford can pick up first downs when you need to. He can get out of pocket. He can manage the pocket as well, where some of the, some of the quarterbacks, like if they see a guy get around a corner, they just tense up and freeze. Um, Matt Stafford tended to do that with the Lions just because it's the Lions and he already had a bad back and broken back and neck and shoulder. But <clears throat> that's when you're here, there, and there. But Russell Wilson and Josh Allen, these guys need elite players on the offense. Just like every good offense thing, you need to have good players. But the, the difference being is that when your team's letting up 25 points a game, you can score with them. When, when your defense is letting up score after score after score, you can compete. You just need your defense to get two or three stops. And what you see this year is for Russell Wilson, his team wasn't getting those stops really, and he was coming off an injury, right? Case in point, Josh Allen though, everyone was talking about, all oh, this team's irrelevant, this team's irrelevant, this team's irrelevant. Josh Allen comes along, they're like, oh, he's not very good. He changes his mechanics. He has like 70% passer rating. He helps carry this offense. De- then they're like, okay, but that wasn't the year. Their defense wasn't very good. They come out this year and it's like, yeah, they're the best team in the league. And these guys can manufacture wins. 
I, I'm not trusting Kirk Cousins to win games. I'm not trusting Jimmy Garoppolo to win games. I'm not trusting Ryan Tannehill to win games. And you can say these guys are winning game-winning drives, but hanging the ball off to Dalvin Cook for him to get 35 to 40 yards on your game-winning drive and you making one play-action pass to Justin Jefferson isn't managing a drive. Same thing with handing the ball off to Derrick Henry. That isn't managing a game-winning drive. That's letting your team work, and that's not wrong, right? That's that's. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but when we look at these things, Teddy Bridgewater is not the dude to win a game. Do we know what Drew Locke is? No. He played like six games. Their offense was fucking terrible. They get all this offensive talent, and He's banged up all in and out the lineup last year, and you don't give him a chance this year, and you bring in Teddy Bridgewater, and you're in the same spot of mediocrity sitting in the middle with him and without him. So my point is, why not let the young kid eat? What, what, and you can say, well, they don't want to lose games. Why? What's, what's the worst thing that happens when you don't make the very bitter end of the playoffs? Right. Think about this. So you make the playoffs. You probably get some money and incentive bonus from a player level, from a business level. You also... Get, get some money for TV revenue and stuff like that. But if you lose games and then you get the top five draft pick and then you have the next quarterback you need or next running back or defensive lineman or you replace Von Miller with a guy like Kevon Thibodeau if he drops that low. Like, that's the thing I don't understand is you're not willing to risk it. It's like, dude, 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 dude. Especially, especially with the fact that... um. The fact that this this Denver Broncos team has been proven to take risks. Like John Elway risked it all on like the six nine dude from Memphis that everyone was like, he sucks, and he's like, nope, first rounder. And so now you're gun shy to give a dude who's shown flashes of being good. Now, is he good? We don't know. And your team's sitting in mediocrity. And you know what's worse? than being really bad, being mediocre. And you can tell me that that's not true. You can tell me that that's not true and that you believe that being mediocre is A-OK and sitting at 6-6 six and six and winning you know, half your games every year it is good. You make the playoffs. Everyone gets to cheer loudly every few weeks. But Teddy Bridgewater is only ever that quarterback, man. And... It doesn't make sense to risk and put a season where your defense has been playing well, where you get the like the AFC West is a little bit lower in skill this year, and you don't take the risk now. Like you take the you you took the risk when you had the best defense in football, but not now when you're sitting in mediocre land. You didn't you didn't take the risk or you took the risk when your team was looking solid as hell and you blew up and imploded everything, and, and now you're not willing to take the risk. John Elway, like you you said, Peyton Manning, I think you can still play. I think you can win championships. And you won. And so I would rather lose games and be bad than sit in mediocrity. I think about the Pistons all the time in this way. And I know the NBA is different. But the Pistons sat at 6-6 six and six, six and six equivalent, getting knocked out of the first round of the playoffs for five straight years. And they were bereft of talent. Because they, they didn't have any draft picks. They didn't have any young guys coming up. And I just don't think that you guys can like rightfully say that that's the right choice. That that's the right decision. Um, the game's going on right now, by the way. Um, 11-10. Patriots are ahead in the third quarter. 
that wraps up my NFL coverage. Um, we're going to be moving on to two more points. One of them is going to be Formula One racing. Um, I'm going to get a poll. How many of you guys watched Formula One? I talked about it on the podcast Friday. Uh, Formula One was a, was crazy, crazy, crazy this weekend. There was two red flags, two complete stoppages. I think five caution flags and, and, and fake vehicles out. Um, there was a Max Verstappen uh, penalty where there's two penalties. Um, the first one was when Max Verstappen... Um, Drove into a corner, kind of locked up his brakes, and then continued to go and just cut the corner and maintained his lead. And that was uh, given a five-second penalty. But there's also one where he basically closed in and cut off uh, Lewis Hamilton. And that one was also one. And then, and because of that, what ended up happening is Max Verstappen was told, hey, let Lewis pass you, let Lewis pass you, let Lewis pass you. And Lewis hadn't heard anything from his engineers yet. And so Max Verstappen slowing down in the middle of the straight. Lewis Hamilton's kind of confused. And then there's a pretty, I wouldn't say blatant. I think Max was kind of like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And get off me. But Max Verstappen brake checked immediately and took off. So all of you guys were like, oh, Max didn't know what he's doing. Is like Max Verstappen immediately got hit and he was, he was gone. He, he took, like, if, if you look at it, and I know not slow motion, but if you watch it regular speed, it's like Hamilton kind of looks confused, and he tries to get around him, and Max really hits the brakes because his car can, goes goes from, like, slowly moving forward and, like, slowly is, like, 50 to probably 60 to, like, stop. And Lewis catches it. And then, um, and then he immediately takes off, and Lewis is confused, and then he had to give the spot back again, and then... Max Verstappen immediately passed them going into the corner because there's this thing which some people probably dislike it who come from a more NASCAR background, but it's basically this thing where you open up the wing on the back and you can watch it if you're racing. So the wings usually closed and then there's basically these passing zones because what ends up happening with these Indy cars, or not Indy cars, Formula One cars, uh, DSR is... They uh, what ends up happening is because the front car and the lead car is traveling with less violent air, so the air is is clean air basically, and it's not right. Like you, sometimes when we think about air, we don't think of it as an active part, right? You don't you don't think of it as a physical thing because we can move so freely through it. You think of water as a substance, and obviously rocks as a substance, but air is its substance in in and of itself. We just can't see it, and so when you're driving these cars and you're going 200, you're creating ripples in the air. And these ripples for, flow over your car, right? Aerodynamics and all that shit. And it leads to the person behind you not getting f- flat air. So the, it ripples around their car more aggressively and it actually lowers their aerodynamics. So if someone's in the lead and they didn't have these DSRs, it'd be near impossible to pass them through open stretches. You'd literally have to outbreak them. That's the only way that you'd be able to do it, especially the fact that not all these engines are the same and some of these engines are literally incredibly different, um, for example. But so what ended up happening is Lewis gets ahead of Max and there's some damage to his car. Like I said, he ran into Max and there's some there's some damage to it earlier where uh, he kind of grinded some fenders, but he really hit it hard on Max's car. And then Max gets DSR because of when he allowed Hamilton to pass was pretty late in the straightaway. 
And so because of it, he gets DSR and then gets to pass him into the corner. And then there's a bunch of controversy. What ends up happening at the end of it, you know, like you can have as much controversy as you want in the race. People can say it's rigged. People can say it was bad or that Max raced a clean race. And, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I don't, I don't think it was necessarily malicious. I honestly think it was a miscommunication between the two. And the miscommunication ended up leading Max to losing uh, the pole position. He didn't have the fastest lap. It sounds like his tires kind of went out with him. And they were going to break and go in the pits. But because he got assessed the five-second penalty, with the five-second penalty along with the pits, he could have lost a full spot. So Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton go tied into the week, into the last week of races, which is this weekend. I believe, I believe it starts at 6 in the morning for me. Let me look. Let me look, let me look. Is it white or black? All right, perfect. Saudi Arabian. I don't want to watch Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, but Abu. I think it's it's in Abu Dhabi. I'm ninety percent sure. Yeah. Whoops. Sorry. I should have had this out already. Yeah, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. It starts the tenth. So this weekend. Um, yeah, so it starts the 10th with all the practices. There's more practice on the 11th. Qualifying is at 6 a.m. on the 11th. And then the race is officially at 6 a.m. my time. So I think 8, 8 a.m. standard. Um, you should watch it. It's going to be an incredible. Um, Max Verstappen's the defending, defending champion at this course. However, the course has been changed. I watched a little uh, two, two TikToks on it, which was absolutely crazy how much they changed this course. They made it a lot more free-flowing. And the funny thing is, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, after all these races, I think they had a longer season this year. I think they added two races. They are exactly tied. Exactly, exactly tied uh, at this point. And it's just incredible. These guys have to have so much forearm strength, neck strength. You, you got to watch it if you aren't watching it. My, my 15 to 20 guys that listen to this podcast, if you aren't currently watching it, I suggest you do. I believe it's on ESPN2. It should be incredible, man. The, the, the pace that these guys race at, the, the ability for them to take these corners and know the braking. And, and, and really, it comes down to a few moments of passing. And in those moments, you, you know, your heart's beating for the guys in the racetrack. I can't even imagine how, how much their heart is beating but it's always really fun to, to watch these races. And, and I just love the fact. I, I love the fact that without a doubt, um, there, there's some bad blood between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. And maybe it all comes to blows. Maybe one of them wrecks the other one and there's a huge controversy. And that's the drama I kind of live for. And so... Let's get let's get nasty, friends, shall we? That's kind of all I'll talk about on Formula One. I am going to jump into MLB, talk about all the transactions, talk about how MLB continues to screw up everything they have planned. Uh, let me get, get you one second here, and we'll get back rolling. I need I do need a drink of water to help help my little throatsies. So first, I'm going to talk about the good things, which are transaction trends. And what we saw this year is money went up for a lot of different players around the league. 
However, I'm going to follow that off with talking a lot of shit about the MLB. So on the last day, Marcus Stroman announces that he's signing with the Cubs. It is a three-year, $71 million deal. I, I, I'm, I'm happy for Stroman, but I'm really upset with the Tigers. The Tigers needed another established arm. And they didn't go and get a guy like Marcus Stroman, who A, eats innings, two, brings a swagger, and real high IQ baseball. He's a great fielder. I think he would have been embraced by the city of Detroit really well. Now, I don't know what those negotiations were like. I don't know if it was like, fuck Detroit, I hate that city, I never want to go there. But I think this was a big miss for Detroit on being able, you know, you you get one free agent, Javier Baez, a high strikeout. You know, that's more of the risky bet. You want him to pay off, so you pay him a little bit low. But Marcus Stroman would have been an incredibly solid bet. And I just hate the fact that they didn't go out and get another elite arm, even with all the young guys on the set, because Marcus Stroman is one of those glue guys, man. He's one of those guys that is going to to help everyone out on that staff. He's going to talk to people. He's going to be a genuine guy. He's going to be great in interviews. And I just really dislike that the Tigers didn't go after him more aggressively because if the Tigers can afford twenty million, three years, $71 million deal, um, and they're still $20 million below the average payroll in MLB. Not even not even the, the superstar, top-talented, average playoff payroll, which gets skewed because the Rays and San Francisco had such low payrolls last year. Um, I mean, if you looked at the median, it would probably be 50 to $60 million above where the Tigers' current payroll is. And everyone's scared because Miguel Cabrera, Miguel Cabrera, his contract was so bad. It's like, yeah, but you got five years where he was making dick and that's where you got all your value. You're paying them on the back end because that's how MLB contracts work. Um, Dodgers' Chris Taylor agreed to four-year, $60 million guy. Utility player Chris Taylor, I like this pickup for the Dodgers. This man's consistent as the day is long. I, I really do like the way that he plays the game. He's consistent. He's fun. He, he's good to be around. The Diamondbacks pick up Mark Melanson, who had, uh, I would say, a good bit of a bounce-back year for the Padres. Two-year, $14 million deal. He is on the back end of his 30s, so not really surprised there. Uh, Dylan Bundy gets sent over to Minnesota. Uh, Dylan Bundy, one-year contract, really show it, prove it. Twins are not going to be good for a few years, so I think this is an investment by Dylan Bundy. Probably went to the team that offered him the most one-year contract that he could get or really the only contract that he may be able to get. Rich Hill joins the Red Sox on a one-year deal. This dude's been pitching for 32 years. Rich Hill, um, the Red Sox lose Eduardo Rodriguez to the Tigers, and they go and pick up another lefty, a crafty lefty. I really, really like that deal. Corey Knibel signs with Phillies, uh, right-hander to a 10-year, $1 million deal. This is a huge pickup for Phillies. They've had a really bad bullpen. They're basically like the Tigers. They have a really good offense. They have good starting pitching, but their bullpen is literally dog water ass. And so Corey Knievel kind of helps bolster that and, and helps helps relieve the stress on some of the starters. Uh, Hunter Renfro gets traded to the Brewers to bring back Jack Lee, Jackie Bradley Jr. Um, they're very similar players other than the fact that Jackie Bradley's a bit better defensively and I think Hunter's a little bit better offensively, but they're both plus athlete, plus arm guys. They're rangy, they're they're skilled, but they both struggle at the plate a little bit. Hunter Renfro's a little bit more powerful than Jackie Bradley, but I just thought this was an interesting trade. Um, obviously, Javier Baez to the Detroit Tigers. This was a huge deal for Detroit because they needed, they needed a 
They, they needed some power in this lineup. Miguel Cabrera's legs are not within him. Spencer Torkelson's probably another six to eight months. You know, at the end of the season, maybe he turns on his power. But there's no power in this lineup. Uh, you know, Ryan's or Scope, Jonathan Scope, is really the best power hitter on this team at, at this point, and he's like a 15 to 16 home run guy. So they're looking some power to protect him, put him in the middle of the lineup, maybe at the top end, and and, and get some guys moving. Don't forget, Akil Badu had a really good season last year. Hopefully, he grows off of it. And I think the Tigers could win 80 to 90 games this year. Not not 90. I think they could get close to 80 wins this year, you know, right around 500 baseball, just because of how young they are. And I do think they have one of the best managers in baseball and AJ Hinch, but he would have to go a long ways and they'd have to pick someone up at the trade deadline to really bolster this offense to being anything other than just average. Um, James Paxton goes to the Red Sox. It feels like years ago when James Paxton left Seattle and went to New York and played in that little Funko Park. And I feel like he's been injured every single year. Um, so the Red Sox actually end up getting two lefties after losing Eduardo Rodriguez. Jan Gomes goes to the Cubs along with Clint Frazier. Clint Frazier has been a guy who's been injured, sent down, up, sent down, playing behind all-star after all-star, play three weeks, sit down, Really bad offensively, really good offensively, really bad defensively, pretty good defensively. It's been a really inconsistent. And then you had John Gomes, the defensive guy who walked like a million times last year. I think he was like, at one point he was hitting 179 and was like fifth in on-base percentage. This dude just doesn't give a darn. But I think these are good pickups for the Cubs. Um, they get a they get an ace in Marcus Stroman. They get a guy like Jan Gomes, a leader, a catcher, going to call a good game. And they get a high-end prospect where Clint Frazier is one of those guys that was highly touted, one of those guys that everyone kind of talked about, that he was one of the next great outfielders that the Yankees organization was going to develop. And that didn't quite happen for him. So maybe they get a season or two or three where he figures it out in playing with the Cubs, you're not in New York City spotlight, you're not playing behind or in replace of, you know, multiple-time All-Stars, you're kind of on a smaller team, so maybe Clint figures it out. Uh, Joey Wendell gets traded uh, to the Marlins. Marlins trying to up that offensive firepower. Uh, Tampa Bay Rays, I mean, they just add prospects. They, they they literally trade away a prospect and add four. I don't really know if they're just planning on never having to pay anyone a lot of money, like never signing a, a big free agent and just having really good young players and letting them go sign elsewhere. It's just really hilarious. Rugen Ordor, which if you remember is a Jose Bautista guy, he signed with the Orioles. Uh, Gio Orcello, Domingo Germain, and Lucas Lutke all get re-signed by the Yankees. Um, Adel, uh, Adam Duvall returns to Atlanta Braves, the World Series victors. Um, this is really where you start to see the big guys go. Max Scherzer goes to the Mets on a huge mega deal. Uh, Three-year, $130 million. He is on the back end of his career in terms of age, but he has not been pitching like he's been on the back end, so I think there was some faith and some kind of relief given to the Mets that they were like, we want a guy like Max. We want this high-end 
top end prospect. The only problem that I have with that is they have so many holes on that roster. I don't know if giving a guy like Max Scherzer that money, especially with how old he is, was the right choice. I think you could have splintered that money out a little bit and given some depth to a Mets roster who really needed it. Superstar Corey Seager signed for 10 years, $325 million. I thought this was surprising. First off, because I thought that Seager was going to stay in California on the Dodgers. He he'd played there for a really long time. But 10 years for $32 million. Uh, they named this guy a superstar. I really like Corey Seager. I think he is a hell of a guy. But entering the last two postseasons, he's been injured. A, that that's something that I always look at is he's 27. He's been injured uh, uh, the last few years, I want to say. Yeah, let's look. So he was, he was an all-star twice when he was 22 and 23. Uh, He hasn't made an all-star team since. He's played 26 games, 134 games, 52 games, and 95 games. Obviously, in the shortened season, 60, he played 52, but he he wasn't healthy by the end of the year into the the playoffs. And this year, I mean, he played 95 games, so he missed a ton. He hasn't hit over 20 home runs since his 145-game season in 2017 when he was 23. I, I don't think there is that much value in a guy that's 27, been on and off injured, and hasn't hit over 20 home runs in four years. But who am I to know what these guys do? Now, I'm not saying he isn't a plus defender and really good when he plays. I think he's an incredible player. I just don't know if he was at the $32 million asking price. Uh, Robbie Ray, the Mariners, uh, get... Robbie Ray last year, everyone questioned, why are you selling the team? Why are you not going and adding guys? I think they wanted to get some of the bigger, more expensive deals off their contract, guys that they knew weren't going to go forward with the team next year. And so they could pick up a guy like Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray won the Cy Young for the Blue Jays pretty much under the radar. I know Blue Jays don't get a lot of credit overall, but Robbie Ray is a journeyman type guy. He's been at a few different places, hasn't really figured it out. He's a lefty. He has plus stuff. It was really never a, does he have the skill or does he have the, the, uh, what's the way to put it? It's not that he didn't have the capability. It's that he needed to put it together consistently. Cause you saw some outings where you're like, God, this guy looks incredible. And then there's some outings where they're like, how does this guy get out? And he figured it out last year, hopefully to sustain success. Cause you like to see a guy, former Tigers got drafted as one and, you know, absolutely crazy. Marcus Simeon signs with the Rangers. This one was also pretty crazy as he signed a seven-year, $175 million contract. And no offense to Marcus Simeon, but he was on a one-year deal last year. And I know he played incredible, but he is getting a butt ton of money, guys. He is getting $25 million a year which I have no problem with Marcus Simeon. I think he's incredible, but sometimes I look at years and I think that we get too excited. So he's 31. So you're signing him to his 38-year-old season. He has he had two out of his last three years, he's hit over 30 home runs. He didn't have a 30 home run year before that. Possible steroids use, question mark? I'm just kidding. I don't want to like throw that out at him. But one thing he is, is he's consistent. He played 162 games 
two out of the last, you know, both times that you could have 159, he played 85, 159, 155. This guy's a game manager. This is the guy, you know, he's a, he's 31. He's on the back end of his age. I wish the guy, the Tigers would be able to go after a guy like this. What I will say is a lot of people are like, well, why wouldn't he want to go to the Tigers? They're awful. It's like the Tigers are in a much better spot than the Rangers are overall. The Rangers lost more games. The Rangers didn't have as many capable guys uh, returning that are young. Um, Byron Buxton, I love calling this guy a star. Um, It's just not true. Um, I like Byron Buxton. I think he's an incredible player. But this man's played over 100 games once. You can't call a guy a star if he can't get to 100 games. And I know that's not on him, and I know it's health issues, and I can't talk about a player's health and how that's reflective of paying him money. But he played... 61 games after playing 39 games, after playing 87 games, after playing 28 games. He doesn't stay healthy. And I think he's a really good player. And I think there was a turning point this last year where it was like, okay, you saw a lot more power. You saw some of these uh, metrics bounce up for him. And it's a seven-year, $100 million contract extension. That's just crazy to me. They're signing a guy who can't stay on the field for seven years. Cause it's not like injuries problems usually get better. They usually get worse as you age, as they start to mount up, especially at a position like center fielder. Now, maybe they shift him the right field. If they're looking to go younger and center, maybe a guy uh, that's a little bit, you know, less adverse into running into walls and injuring himself. But this guy, he just, he can't play. So I don't, I don't understand how they were able to do that. Uh, Rays add two-time side young winner, Corey Kluber. It's the most Rays move of all time. Add a guy that you're going to change his spin rate, going to move his grip. This guy's going to have the right sticky stuff. And he's on a one-year $8 million deal. Exceptionally good pickup by the Rays as they continue to swindle everyone else. I don't know if it's like, hey, we're going to make you a better picture and you can make more money on the league you know, on, on the diamond next year. So just stay here a year. I don't know what it is, but the Rays with an incredible move there. Marlins add outfielder Avisayo Garcia and working on Sandy, Contra- Sandy Alcantara contract extension. This Marlins team, like I said, they needed offensive output. Avisayo Garcia is a cheaper option on out- offensive output. I think they like some of the younger guys that are coming up, but these guys, they're going to, they're going to win by limiting runs, not, not by scoring runs. Um, Adam Frazier goes to the Mariners. Padres acquire Raymond Kerr and Corey Rogier. Um, Mets get some guys, Starling Marte and Eduardo Escobar. These both both these guys, I believe, were on Arizona last year. Arizona's dog water, but these two teams were pretty pretty damn good. Uh, Marte had a four year seventy eight million dollar contract and a two-year $20 million contract with Eduardo Escobar. These are both really good pickups for a Mets team that doesn't hit. And so I know I was talking about how they have so many holes. I only mean that in the sense that you're paying Max Scherzer, a guy in the back end of his age, um, so much money, and you have, you've had so much inconsistencies with Grom being healthy. And, 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 and they didn't re-sign Syndergaard, right? No, 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 no. So like DeGrom, like you just, there have been so many unhealthy moves kind of. Uh, Michael Waka goes to the Red Sox. I like Waka. That's all I have to say. Um, Wander Franco may have signed the worst deal of all time. He signed a 12-year, $185 million deal. Uh, he signed away the rights to him making a lot of money. Because what you need to do is a five-year deal for probably the same amount per year. So that way when you're 28 instead of 31... 
and you just hit for 40 home runs, you don't hold out and, you know, like 12 years is way too long. That that guy's an idiot. Whoever his agent is, is literally an idiot. I know Wandy, Wander Franco was like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm a young kid. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be 31, 32 by the time that contract ends and you have no availability to scale up your pay scale, even with where all tends to be that people are going to be making 50 million by then, you're still going to be making just over $12 million. Like that's absolutely incredible. And and people are like, why Wander Franco is worth every penny? Because you signed a kid's life away. Like, like I would feel bad. I would feel bad that I had a 20 year old sign 12 year, a 12 year contract, a 12 year contract where I know that if he pans out to be anything that he's supposed to be, anything close to what he's supposed to be, anything damn close to what he's supposed to be. He's going to be making and generating at the same level as people making 50 and 60 million dollars a year. But that's why I'm not a scummy businessman and that's why I'm not a scummy MLB owner. These MLB owners are not good people. I don't like them. I think they're tacky and I kind of hate them. Is that is that okay to say? Because every single time I turn my back on these hooligans, I'm like, it's football season. I'm not going to talk about the MLB. I don't want to talk about the MLB. You know, I'll talk about transactions and stuff, but I don't want to talk about why the MLB sucks. I don't want to talk about any of this. They just, like, like, like here's the difference between MLB and every other sport, is that when it's the offseason, you don't hear bad things. When it's the offseason in the NFL, you only hear about how cool the draft's going to be. You only hear about how fun the training camp's going to be. You don't hear that the MLB owners or the NFL owners are holding out over contract extensions and then have a seven-minute meeting on the last possible day and say, screw it. And all the, all the players were asking for, it, it, was, it was honestly quite reasonable, is, hey, let's take care of people. Let's make sure that you can't manipulate our usage time so you can't bring us up and then bring us down at the start of the year for three weeks and then bring us up and that not count as a full year? How about, how about that? How about you don't get a full extra year of time because I waste three weeks? How, how about you don't ruin people's lives and force someone under a contract that they signed when they were probably 19 or 21? And you can say, well, they're not forced. They don't have to sign it. Ask Kumar Rocking, Rocker how's, how's, how's that going for his career. So Kumar Rocker, if you guys don't know, Vanderbilt guy, had some elbow and shoulder issues. You saw his velo go down at the end of last year. He didn't want to get a full MRI, even after they drafted him. Didn't want to work with him and didn't sign him to a contract. And therefore, he goes the whole year without being able to sign with anyone and has to wait to get drafted next year. So even when you don't sign with someone, you're not a free agent. You can't sign wherever you want to. You literally get drafted again. So you're literally in a process of not being able to make any choices for yourself. So while, while you guys are like, well, they could just blah, blah, blah. shut up. Listen, the MLB owners are billionaires. They're not your friends. They're not people that you should probably respect. They're probably scumbags. They probably wrote on Epstein's jet. So what I'm saying is that stop acting like they're your friends. You know who your friend is? The kid that grew up in Venezuela that didn't have any shoes, had to wear a piece of cardboard on his hand to field baseballs during the day, that now gets to help his whole entire family for the next 10 generations. That's who you need to be looking out for. And I know, well, if you don't have the owners, you don't have the MLB. I agree. They do a lot of good things. But if you don't see this as way that Owners, owners don't lose money. Like no owners losing money doing any of these sports. Maybe MLS and maybe at the very, very bottom of the league. Maybe like not even the Rays because they're pay, they're, they're, they don't pay anyone. But like no, none of these teams are really losing money in a year in, year out basis 
along with everything else because you got to look at it. Most of these stadiums are gifted to them through taxpayers' incentives, right? They don't pay for these stadiums. The workers they get because of the working hours and because of all that are all part-time, so they probably don't have to pay for health care. And these workers are probably actually subcontracted out even people in the front office, like ticket salespeople don't work for the Arizona Diamondbacks organization. Now there's people in the Arizona Diamondbacks organization that work for them, but most of these guys are subcontracted out. That way they don't have to worry about health benefits. That way they don't have to worry about any of these other things. And they literally can just say, kaput, it doesn't matter. On a secondary note, these people aren't your people. The people that are your people are the people playing the game, which is why you watch. It's not the billionaire that literally has never sat in a, in a game seat that has only watched from boxes for the last 42 years while drinking cab, or eating caviar and drinking champagne off of supermodel's boobs. That's not, your, that's not the guy you're supposed to connect to. And I think I always see these people shill out, and I get it. The owners are important, but the owners are always unreasonable. MLB players are like, hey, in the minor league system, can you please provide players with housing because you don't pay for them, you don't pay them enough money to live in the cities that these teams are located. So you have 12 guys living in a single bedroom apartment in California hoping to save up enough money to pay for, not rent that week, because with all eight of them, they can buy rent to save up food. They aren't offering them food. And, and if you want to incentivize it, you need to kind of restructure how you do it. If you need less teams, that's good. Have indie ball teams be more important. Have teams be, you know, develop and, and, and use these indie balls that know how to treat people, right? Like the indie balls don't, don't make the money that these MLB teams do, and so they don't pay out as much money. But at least they treat these players with respect for the most part. But the MLB, unless you make it to the MLB and start generating the team money, because you got to understand all these teams make money on their own. So... Other than the players and the transactions up and down, the Whitecaps make money off of selling the merchandise on behalf of these players. They're, they're just affiliated. They're not actually owned or operated. or It's not like you have a giant scale. That's why at any time they can cut the season, they can cut the funding, they can cut the players, which is what happened during the pandemic. And so people want us to feel bad. All oh, this pandemic, all oh, this pandemic, all oh, this pandemic. Shut the hell up. Just shut the hell up. You guys laid off all your workers. You guys did all that stuff. We all saw it. Like, I don't have to feel bad for a billionaire not making money. Like, that's the weird thing that I always come back to is like, what if they do lose money? Who, can, who If a billionaire loses money, the reason why it's such a shock is because they're not used to ever losing money. And so these people try to convince us that like it's the end of the world if they ever lose money. We People lose money all the time. People who run businesses, small businesses, local businesses, they have bad years. The MLB is never at a point where it's going to be completely wiped out and they're always unreasonable. They always sign contracts. It's the worst run organization. And I'm not even getting to the fact that the manager and, and the leader, the person who directs the operations of MLB, should be like a doctor at a hospital. This is what I'm going to make a comparison on. So please listen to this. The MLB, this is going to be my last point and I'm going to wrap up because I'm already getting fired up and I could talk about this for two hours. Maybe I will someday. But the MLB owner said, hey, Kansas City and Detroit are playing tonight. Let's use soft balls. Oh, Yankees-Mets series tonight. Oh, Aaron Judge is playing. Giancarlo Stanton's playing. Pete Alonso's playing. Let's use the harder ball. And it's in Yankee Stadium. Let's do the harder ball so it flies further. So that way, those games are more entertainment. It draws in views. And that way, Kansas City and Detroit can't score any runs. So MLB offensive stats are affected. 
And therefore, because the MLB offensive stats are affected, we can then pay them less in payroll. This would literally be like a doctor, right? Having two hospitals that he overlooks. One in, um, let, let's just say, Bel Air, California, right? One in Bel Air and the other one in Crenshaw. And it would be like him saying, hey, you know the you know the defective needles that we have that, that sometimes cause blood clots? Let's send those down there. Look, all of our big money, we have the big surgeries up here. This is our nice hospital. We need to have all the big surgeries up here. That way people keep coming back. We need the clean needles. And we don't need to get rid of the defective needles because we can make money off of them. Because in the long end, if, if, if these people do develop blood clots, then we don't have to treat them because none of them have insurance and they can't pay. Like that is the equivalence of this. And I know I'm speaking about life and death and this isn't necessarily life and death, but for some of these players it is. And and the fact that the MLB is willing to do that is criminal. They should be prosecuted. This guy should go to jail. He's literally, you want to talk about capitalism and why capitalism is bad? Like if any one of you out there, capitalism haters, talk talk about why capitalism is bad. It's shit like this. People literally sucking the dick of the owners of billionaires being like yeah we need to make more money we can't pay that guy money we can't pay him money well how much you make last year uh well how much your team make you what do you mean how much your team make you well why is that relevant well the the players want a partnership and want to say hey if your profits go up our contract should go up in in flow so if you're making more profits you shouldn't be running away with all the extra revenue. It should be it should be given out to us because we're the ones making you that money. And then we'll be owners like, no, mm-mm. You, you thought you had us. You thought you thought you could get us. And that MLB owners are just ridiculous. Uh, they find any way to be sleazeball, old, crusty, shitty white man who ruined the game. I mean, when when the commissioner of baseball comes out and says baseball isn't a national sport, it is regional, and we don't te- want to attend to a national audience. You know these fucking guys are fucking miserable old lunatics who sit at their table and talk about how much better the days were when the white man was the only one playing baseball. Like, I, like, I don't want to impose on any of the owners because I'm sure some of them are good guys. But, like, it just is so sleazy. Like, I feel like if I met a, any one of these dudes, I'd want to just punch him straight in the dick. I don't know. That, that's going to wrap up my thoughts on all this stuff. I'm going to have the poll out about whether you watched Formula One. But it's literally criminal behavior, and no one cares about it. Oh, by the way, if you guys didn't know, Ghislaine Maxwell is actually on trial right now. I know the national media won't talk about it because they're talking about the Omnicore, the the Septicon variant, or some shit like that that we're now on. But if you haven't, please look up the facts. So it isn't recorded because it's a federal investigation, but there's some real damning evidence against a lot of people um, it's absolutely incredible. You need to follow it. You need to bring awareness to it like I'm trying to do now, and I completely forgot about it, so I'm saying it at the end. So hopefully you listen to that then. I'm going to put in a note that you fuckers need to listen to this. But Giselle Maxwell's case is going on right now. There's a ton of things like 16-year-old girl, 17-year-old girl, and it's technically in international waters. Um, 
but she was flown out there given specific clothes which was a very short skirt and a white top in order to give a sexual massage to him and she feels like she couldn't refuse i mean it's absolutely incredible the the type of things that these billionaires and millionaires got away with which is why every single day i lose respect for them so you keep on trudging along all of us worthless piles of shit who work day to day who have to figure out why life sucks this bad i respect you i appreciate you and i love the fact that we all develop time and if you're developing an hour and a half to listen to this fucker speak I really do respect you. So thank you guys so much. As always, the corners have been painted. You have a wonderful night. We will see you probably Wednesday. If not Wednesday, I'll have a Thursday podcast up for you. Love you guys. Corners have been painted. Good night.